This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of The Sermon on the Mount Bible Study by Jen Wilkin. In this nine-session study, Wilkin invites readers to examine and learn from Jesus' longest recorded message and challenge themselves to think differently about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. With your purchase, you'll also receive access to this study's video sessions. Get your copy today at lifeway.com slash sermon on the mount. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, you'll hear a message from Kevin DeYoung, originally given at TGC's 2018 West Coast Conference. My task is to preach from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. Which set of words better describes a Christian? Wounded, weak, broken strugglers, or strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers? Wounded, weak, broken strugglers, or strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers. Which set of words better describes what the Christian is and ought to be? Hopefully you're not too quick to answer that trick question. Because if you know your Bibles, you should know that all of those words properly defined can find implicit and in most cases explicit warrant in scripture. And yet I imagine that given our personality, given the church background we grew up in, or oftentimes the family background or church environment we're reacting against, we may gravitate toward one or the other of those descriptions. And there are, I find, many, many people today who would almost exclusively emphasize that first set of characteristics and they would describe the Christian life and the Christian virtues and the Christian motif for ministry as one that is solely to be weak and wounded and broken and struggling, all of which can be supported from scripture and yet by themselves without the rest of scripture to also fill up what those words mean and don't mean can be lopsided. For we are in many passages like this one, which I'm about to read, 
exhorted to be in the midst of weakness and suffering, strengthened to endure. And so we want neither an exaggerated triumphalism nor an emotive failureism. Can you find both of those in the church today? For some, an exaggerated triumphalism, whether that's a personal triumphalism, just from glory to glory, no place for weakness, no place for doubting, no place for pain, or perhaps triumphalism on a church or a national scale. And then on the other hand, don't we find some whose Christianity has become little more than emotive failureism? You're miserable, I'm miserable, you're not good at anything, I'm not good at anything, you just fail, you're not sanctified, you're not holy, we're all just wonderfully miserable. And that's not quite the tenor of New Testament Christianity, is it? What we see in this passage is that we are to be strengthened, but it is a strength that comes not from ourselves, but by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Follow along as I read from 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The two big ideas in this passage are given to us in verse 1. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Or you could put it this way, be strong, God is stronger. So be strengthened, that's the first paragraph. And then the second paragraph is to explain how, in fact, we are strengthened. Because the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is kind enough not to simply tell us to be strengthened and to endure, but then to give us theological reasons for doing so. He doesn't just say it and it happens. He wants to know how does this happen. Reminds me of just a few weeks ago, my 13-year-old son came up to me and he said, Dad, how do I get a six-pack? Not, not six-pack, but a six-pack. And my first thought was, well, I can, I can see why you're asking that question, son. <laughs> Your mother asks that often, you know, how do you get a six-pack? No, I said, you're 13, what do you need a six-pack for? He said, well, how do I just want one? I said, don't worry about it yet. In fact, Don't worry about it ever. (laughs) 
but I want to know. And he's doing push-ups and he's doing crunches and he's doing things. He wants to know. How do you get from here to there? He wants to be strong. How do you get strength? Well, we ought to ask that same question as Christians. Paul has in his mind, you see verse 2, the passing on of this deposit and the passing on of this strength, which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. And we could, if we had time, camp out there and just speak of discipleship from generation to generation and training in your churches, among your elders and leaders and women to women. But we are going to move on and look at what Paul means by strength. What what is this strength that he wants Timothy to have and by extension pastors to have and I think we can by implication look at ministry leaders or anyone here as you walk the Christian walk and as you seek to influence others for Christ. What does it look like to be strengthened? Well, helpfully in this first paragraph under this first banner of be strengthened, Paul gives three analogies. That's a great sermon here because it just, the the three points just fall down from heaven for you. Three pictures. First, he says, you're to be like a soldier. Verse three, soldiers share in suffering. You cannot choose whether or not to suffer. You may be able to choose some extent of it, but all of us, you live long enough, you suffer. And so you can then choose how to suffer. He says, don't suffer as a whiny child, as a disappointed husband, as a leaky love tank, as an evangelical who everyone is always picking on me, but as a soldier. Now listen, Paul is not calling for some kind of emotionless stoicism. You know soldiers, some of you may have served in the armed forces and I've known them in my family and certainly among friends and churches. Soldiers get sad. Soldiers share grief. He isn't saying pretend like nothing bad happens and run away from it. What he's saying is do not be surprised by it. Understand that as a soldier, there will be hardships. Remember a pastor telling me one time, even before I was in ministry, giving me this good advice. He said, if you're fighting in a war and you're in a foxhole and someone else across the way pops up and begins shooting at you, you don't say, was it something I said? (laughs) No, you understand that you're in a battle and you get hurt and you get shot at and sometimes, sadly, it's friendly fire. Understand to endure, share in suffering as a soldier And then he says, to please the one who enlisted him, verse 4. This is an encouragement, first of all, for pastors, that your interests not be divided. We have hobbies, that's good. We have families, we need to love them well. But we are, first of all, to please our commanding officer. And it's true for pastors and ministry leaders. It's true for all of us who want to follow Christ with a single-minded devotion. Now listen, this is not the only analogy for the Christian life, the only analogy for our relationship with God. You could go to scripture and say our relationship with God is collectively as a a wife to a husband. It's like a child to his father. But don't miss this. It is also like a soldier 
with his commanding officer. And I dare say that not many of us think of our relationship with God in that way. In fact, some of us would probably say, oh, no, no, don't do that. That's a little bit cold. That's a little bit authoritarian. But here it is in the scriptures, to please your, in your commanding officer. Several years ago, I, I found this on a church website. Thankfully, I can't remember what church it was from. But I found these, these points. This is just, these are all quotes from the website. What you will find, a casual atmosphere, Friendly people who will help you find your way around. Today's music, powerful dramas, high-impact media presentations. Messages relevant to your daily life. An amazing children's space. A Starbucks-esque cafe where you can relax, recharge, and relate in your comfort zone with a coffee in your hand. Saturday night extras, including more music, more food, cafe tables, and a Wi-Fi zone to soothe your inner geek. And you will find that you matter to God. Whether you're single, married, single again, with or without children, no matter where you've been or what you've done, we invite you to experience the difference here. Just by way of comparison, here's the seal code. (laughs) Loyalty to country, team, and teammates. Serve with honor and integrity on and off the battlefield. Ready to lead, ready to follow, never quit. Take responsibility for your actions and the actions of your teammates. Excel as warriors through discipline and innovation. Train for war, fight to win, defeat our enemies. Earn your trident every day. And soothe your inner geek. Now, to be fair, we can find scriptural support for emphases in both of those descriptions, but with the exception of perhaps the notion of earning your trident every day, I submit to you that the seal code has a whole lot more by way of biblical language and imagery than does this very hip church website, which says, come, everything will be comfortable Everything will be easy. It will be just like everything you want in your life with a Starbucks in your hand and Wi-Fi and nice music. It will be for you. Just try it. Please, please, please. I know, I know that instinct as a pastor. I know that instinct. Oh, there's a new couple here. Look at them. Oh, they have children. Somebody get them offering envelopes. Quick, 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 quick. Do you want the new members class? No, skip the new members class. You want to be a member? You want to get baptized? You've been baptized? Oh, we do it better here. Oh, come on, just go. Doesn't, doesn't it amaze you when you study Jesus in the Gospels? He's constantly trying to get rid of people. He's got a crowd. He's got thousands of people. They want to make him king. And he's like, I'm not the one you want. I'm not that sort of king. Let the dead bury their dead. You can't follow me unless you hate your mother or father. Really? Endure hardship as a soldier. The second analogy, the second word picture then is as an athlete. It says the athlete, verse 6 or verse 5, is not crowned unless he competes according 
to the rules. Now here he means the rules of the Christian game, so-called, involve suffering and hardship. Romans 8, 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In 1 Timothy 4, 16, he tells Timothy there, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Why? Because you might be disqualified for the prize. In other words, he says, there's two great lessons from sports. Now, I know sports can be a great source of idolatry and pain and push people away from Sundays. There are all sorts of problems with it in our culture. But done rightly, Paul sees that there are important lessons. Sports reminds us of two important lessons. Number one, there is right and wrong. And number two, there are winners and losers. Now, even sports today is questioning both of those. Are there really rights and wrongs? And are there really winners and losers? I, I, I would not fancy myself a great athlete, but I, I like to stay active. I like to run and, you know, do weekend races and 5Ks or work my way up to something longer. And I'm not uh, expecting to win. I'm, I tell my wife I'm not turning pro quite yet. But I find that, as and I've done these for years, that now with most races... Everybody gets a medal. Now, on the rare occasion that I actually placed high enough to win a medal, I don't want any of you to get medals. <laughs> I would trade in a shoebox of 25 participant medals for one medal that I felt like I really did it. But you know, that's the way you get trophies and ribbons and medals for participating. We can understand why and at certain ages that may be helpful for children. And, but listen, sports ought to teach us, and Paul is, is getting at this here, that when it comes to living your life, talking about an eternal destiny, not everyone's getting first place. In fact, if you think you're first place, you may just be getting last place. And if you think you're in last place, you may just be the sort of person who's going to get first place, Jesus said. You say, are you sure Paul said that? Well, here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? No participation medals for Paul. <laughs> run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body, make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He's a soldier. He's an athlete, knowing that some in this eternal destiny will win, some will lose. Now, we must quickly insert that it's not the same as training to say I am the fastest and I've run the farthest and I have proved myself to be the best. We, he's not saying how you win the prize. We know you win the prize through Christ. But nevertheless, it is true. And one of the things that hopefully we reinforce to our children, we reinforce to people under our care in school or in ministries, is that there's, there are consequences for not doing things God's way. And one of the things I hope we reinforce is that not everyone does get an A. Not everyone does get first place. Because in life, and especially in eternal life, not everyone makes it to heaven. 
He gives a third word picture, soldier and athlete, and then a farmer. The same idea here. Ministry in particular and Christian life in general requires hard work. So if the soldier was to point to endurance and the athlete to work according to the rules for the prize, then the image of the farmer is that we ought to be hardworking, that we might have the first share of the crops. Now, again, you must hear Paul is dealing with images here. He's not trying to undermine justification by grace through faith alone by talking about hard work. He's simply saying, as Jesus himself would say, we must strive. We must make an effort. My wife and I know about farmers from both sides of our families. And the first church that I served in as an associate pastor was in Iowa. And there were dozens and dozens of farmers in that church and learned all sorts of things and learned to ask what the price of corn was and how the soybean crop was doing and how the the rainfall patterns and ask questions about combines like I knew what I was talking about. I've been around farmers and I've seen my share of rude farmers, disagreeable farmers, sometimes cantankerous farmers. I have never met a lazy farmer. You know what lazy farmers are called? Suburbanites. <laughs> like me. <laughs> you, if your lazy farmers don't make it in farming very long. All the farmers I have known have been hardworking. I remember my first church going to visit a man in the hospital who was in his mid-80s and his wife was there chagrined. Why is your husband in the hospital? He said he was standing up on his tractor trying to fix something and he fell off. Not a good idea to do at any age. More seriously, I'll never forget when I was in maybe middle school and hearing my parents get an urgent phone call from far away that my grandfather had uh, had an accident in a combine and got his leg stuck in a moving combine and pulled himself out somehow, survived, lost his leg, lived the rest of his life with a prosthetic metal leg from the knee down. He had all sorts of fun stories about flying. He could be one of those sort of cantankerous, hardworking farmers. If you ask me to take off this leg one more time, I'm going to hit you over the head with it. (laughs) That sort of thing. I've known a lot of farmers. All the farmers I've ever known have been hardworking. Some of us could stand to have a little more farmer in us. And so could our churches. I'm so thankful for my parents who never entertained the idea that we weren't going to church on Sunday. How many people do you have in your churches? Whether you're the leaders or you're the the one in the pews, how many people do we find increasingly in our churches? It becomes just a thing, maybe it works this Sunday. What time are the games on? Who's playing? How nice is the weather? Do the kids have any soccer games? I mean, my my parents were to the hill. I mean, I'm sure we got people the in influenza multiple times. Well, you're sick, doesn't matter. Pfft, church. <laughs> Jesus can heal you, church. Just... <laughs> it's all the time. And I can't tell you how many times I've already had this conversation with my kids as they ask on Saturday night, are we going to Sunday school tomorrow? Or are we going to church? Are we going to evening church? I've had to say, just listen, I, I want to give you several Several questions, the answer to which will always be yes. (laughs) Okay, I just want to set your, you you don't need to ask this anymore on Saturday night or Sunday morning. 
The answer is yes. We're going to Sunday school. We're going to church. We're going to evening church. Hard work. How many of us live the Christian life that way? How many of us are reinforcing those sort of values in our people, in our children? I I remember one summer, one of the first jobs I had, and I had to mow the lawn. It was one of my, my middle school teachers said, I'm going to be, be gone for several weeks, and could you mow the lawn? I'd never mowed a lawn before, and I was just a, a weak little kid, and the, the, he kind of had a, a hilly terrain, and I, I showed my parents later. They, they drove by, and, and here it is, and the thing was just undulating. It was no straight lines anywhere. I said, well, it was a hilly place. Mom said, I'd done such a bad job that my older brother had to do it and had to fix it. And I couldn't accept any money from my teacher for doing it because I had done a poor job. Probably a good lesson. You say, well, this is works righteousness. Well, no. <laughs> Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. It's works righteousness if Paul means I worked harder than all of them to make my way up to God so that he would love me which of course is not what he means. He means as one, untimely born, as an apostle, saved by grace through faith alone, I worked hard. How many Christians, whether you're baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, whatever, know the value of hard work? You work hard at all sorts of things, for your test scores, for your school, for your instruments, for your athletics. Remember one of my professors in college told me, it was a Christian college, he told me the worst answers he got were the, the pious sounding lazy answers. So he'd have on the test, give me a paragraph about Augustine, identify Augustine. And he said that the, the answers that he just couldn't stand, that he would just fail were the people who wrote, Augustine was a man of God who loved the Lord. He studied the scriptures and worked so so marvelously on behalf of God's people. His life is an example of Christ's likeness that inspires me, and his writing continues to influence the church to this present day. F! <laughs> no, you need to say he was born in 354, he died in 430, he was the Bishop of Hippo, he wrote the Confessions in the City of God, he debated Pelagius, he was converted into the garden after hearing Ambrose preach. Give me some facts, work hard at this. Now, people are at all different points on the journey. People have different gifts, we understand. There's, there's room for doubters, there's room for failing. We know that. There's grace for mistakes. That's what following Christ entails. But there's also hard work. As a soldier, as a farmer, as an athlete, be strong. It's not just emotive failureism to be a Christian. Sometimes we use that language I'm just sort of a failure. And we use it to describe egregious sins. You know, as if, you know, grandpa just sort of tussled our hair and said, oh, you silly little rascal. What does it say at the end of 2 Samuel 11 after David's sin with Bathsheba? Does it say, and the Lord looked down and David was a real screw up. It says, and the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Be strengthened, Paul says. Endure suffering and hardship. He then finishes off the paragraph in verse 7. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. 
And before we leave this paragraph, it would be, be good, perhaps sometime later tonight or this weekend with a friend or a family member, or even thinking about your church with other ministry leaders. What, which of these do you need to hear? Soldier, athlete, farmer. Which of these images have you been neglecting in your life or in your church's ministry? Have you, in appropriately listening to biblical images of other sorts of relational descriptors of God and his people, neglected these important descriptions? Think over what I'm saying, Paul says. The Lord will give you understanding. Now, he moves to the second paragraph and Here with him, we move to the second heading. So verse one says, be strengthened. And he gives those three examples of what strength looks like in the Christian life. But importantly, it's not just a message that says, get your act together, be strong. It's strengthened by grace. We must always get that together. Not failure by grace, not Strength just by the, our own dint of personality, strengthened by grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so in the second paragraph, he highlights Christ's work, which gives us grace, Christ's word, and Christ's character. All three enable us to be strong, to endure, to press on. So first then, we can look at Christ's work. In verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He's just told Timothy to be strong, to be a soldier, to be an athlete, to be a hardworking farmer. Now he gives the most important word of all. All right, Timothy, I want you to remember not just those pictures, but I want you to remember, first of all, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Not simply Jesus, the teacher of justice and compassion, or Jesus, the gentle healer, or even even Jesus, the lover of your soul, but Jesus, the conqueror of the grave. He goes on, the offspring of David, that is the one hoped for, as preached in my gospel, that is the good deposit that I have passed on to you. I want you to remember Christ's finished work on the cross, for sins, raised to life three days later, Remember, this is not just wishful thinking. This is not just the the power of, of good to come out of evil or light to shine in the midst of darkness. I want you to remember historical fact. Remember what J. Gresham Machen called the gospel. He said it's historical fact plus theological interpretation. Both of those things. Not just wishful thinking. It's not just a story about human potential. Remember having a debate with another pastor one time about the virgin birth. And he was saying, well, to me, the part where it says in the gospel, any, everything is, all things are possible with God, uh, that's more important to my faith than the virgin shall conceive and give birth. And I said, well, if it's really important to your faith that all things are possible with God, you might want to consider that this is possible too. You see, it's not just a, a metaphor that we're basing our hope on. It's history. This happened. A man named Jesus, he really lived and breathed and he died and he rose again. That's history. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, theological interpretation. That's the gospel. Remember it, Paul says, the finished work of Christ. And then he moves from Christ's work to Christ's word. He says, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but 
The word of God is not bound. Do you see what he's doing? You can be strong in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of disappointment, betrayal, hardship, suffering. Why? Because we believe in our intrinsic power? No, because we believe in the inherent power of words. Gospel words. He says, I may be, I may be in chains. I may not be able to go anywhere the word of God is not bound. Some of you facing opposition in your church. Maybe you got a zoning committee that won't let you buy a piece of land or build something. Or maybe you have a local government that's bearing down in some way. Or maybe you have been unfairly treated by others and they look at you and they think, well, those are just the bigots in our community. And you think you don't have the opportunities. Maybe you're not allowed to go on college campuses like you once were. And we ought to fight for religious liberty and all of these gifts. Nevertheless, no matter how many setbacks, no matter who opposes you, no matter even if you are in chains, Paul says, the word of God is not in chains. The word of God is not bound. Think about the imagery of the seed, the seed being sown. Just keep sowing, just keep sowing, just keep sowing. Isn't that what Dory said? And, and you know that story of, of the, the sower and the soils and some fell on the rocky path and some fell on the thorns and some fell on the shallow ground and we know this is the different hearts. But have you ever thought about what a, what a profligate sower, what's he doing? Stones, okay. <laughs> Thorns, that might work. <laughs> Beach sand, woo, just sowing, sowing, sowing. Because the power is in the germinating might of the seed. You can, you can bury a, a human being, a, you know, a few feet underground. Don't recommend it if they're still alive, but you can do that. And, uh, you, you, you can't claw your way out, but you put a little, a little teeny seed into that earth and it finds its way out. It can grow and be 10 stories tall and live for 100 years. Such is the germinating power inherent in the seed. The word is not bound. Evangelism does not guarantee results. Evangelism is to get the word right and to get the word out to speak them, to go out by Bibles and radios and tapes if you have them and CDs and internet and podcasts and social media and books and magazines and pamphlets and tracts and preachers and by 10 million witnesses that the word would go forth. And so he can say in verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. They also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see here how the sovereignty in God, of God in salvation is not a demotivator for evangelism, but it is a motivator to keep on pressing on. I endure. Why? Well, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a high view of God's sovereignty, if you believe that God is the one who chooses, if you believe that God's will is prior to any of our willing, if you believe that regeneration must precede faith, if you believe that with this high view of God, then why are you busting your tail out there to share the gospel? Like God's God, he's just going to do what he wants. He's already chosen people. That is never, ever 
the logic from Paul or any of the apostles. It's just the opposite. Why would I keep pressing on in this backwards nothing town? Why would I keep sharing the gospel in the 1040 window? Why would I keep preaching to these upper middle class people who have everything and don't think that they need Jesus? Why would I keep doing that? Because you believe that there are elect and that God has yet people here and that you never know as you lob some hand grenades every Sunday, whether from the pulpit or in your Bible study or around the dinner table, you never know which one of those is going to blow. And lo and behold, someone gets born again and someone gets saved because of the word, because God says that the sheep will hear my voice. And so you keep pressing on to be a faithful Sunday school teacher and to share the gospel with your classmates and with your sweet mates and with your cubicle mates to keep on sharing because you believe in the power of the word that, that for everyone who has been chosen by God, there will be a moment in their life as there has been in yours, whether you can remember it or not or it happened when you were four or 40 or 80, a moment when, when you go from not just reading a verse or hearing a sermon or hearing your friend talk to you about the gospel, but all of a sudden without even Realizing what's happening, you hear the very voice of Jesus speaking to you. And he says, come, and you come. He says, believe, and you believe. He says, be born again, and you are born again. Just as at the beginning he said, let there be light, and there was light. We press on because of Christ's work, because of Christ's word, and Finally, because of Christ's character. This brings us to this saying at the end of the passage, this trustworthy saying. There are five of these trustworthy or faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. This one, and you can tell by the way most translations give it a kind of poetic versification that it might have been an early hymn or a confession. You notice that the pronouns suddenly switch to we, suggesting that it might be a call and response. It might be an early liturgical element in worship. There's an obvious if-then parallelism. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Speaking of the death that comes through conversion, the death to ourself, the death, death to our own ideals, the, the death to our own ideas, the death to our own plans and hopes and dreams at times that Christ would reign in our mortal bodies. If we have died with him, we live with him. Verse 12, if we endure, we reign with him. And this is a major theme of Paul as he writes both of these letters to Timothy, endure suffering. There's persecution now. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he says, will, not may, will be persecuted. In some way, you will be reviled. In some way, you will be oppressed. May not be with chains, may not be with scars, but in some way you will. This is, this is a, a good way to track your Christian life. If everyone hates you, something's probably wrong. If everyone loves you, something's probably wrong. Because he says, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. So we must endure if we want to reign with him. 
Isn't this what we try to teach our children? The benefit of delayed gratification? Not your best life now, but your best life later. And then he changes gears a bit in the second half of verse 12. If we deny him, he will also deny us. We're really tracking with the first two if-thens. We like those. Yes, we die, we live, we endure, we reign. But we, we can't neglect this. He says, if, if we deny him, he will deny us. Matthew 10, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Some do make shipwreck of the faith. That's an entirely different theological seminar to explain why this does not negate the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. The short explanation is what we find in 1 John 2, that some went out from you and they did not remain with you, proving that they never really were of you. There are people who have covenant connections who are not true Christians, just like Paul can say there are some who are children of Abraham, they're not really children of Abraham. There are some who are of Israel who are not really of Israel. There are some who are circumcised who are not really circumcised of the heart. In the same way, there are some on our church roles who are not really in the heavenly roles. And we have examples here. He says, the Asians deserted me. Different than what we think of Asians, you can relax, but the Asians here <laughs> deserted him. Hymenaeus and Philetus deserted him. Alexander, the coppersmith, left him. And so lines two and three are opposites. Some endure and some do not. Those who endure will reign. Those who deny Christ will be denied. This is one of many warning passages in the New Testament which are meant to cause the elect to persevere. I say this to preachers in the room, and, uh, and I don't mean it in a cheeky way. I mean it with all sincerity. If we are preaching not only the meaning of the text, but the mood of the text, we will from time to time want to scare the hell out of people. We will. May it never be that someone in your churches could stand before God one day and say, no one ever warned me of a judgment to come. No one ever warned me. If you're the watchman on the walls, are you sounding the trumpet because you know that a judgment is coming? That's what these passages are meant to do. They are the means by which the elect are caused to endure. And then he says in verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And this particular if-then phrase has stumped many commentators. And if you want to come to a different conclusion than I do, I can understand, for the commentators are quite divided. There are at least three ways we can interpret verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It could mean, even if we are faithless, we fail, we struggle, we wander, yet he will be faithful, he cannot deny himself, his name is upon us, and he will save us still, even if we have a period of wandering away. That's one interpretation. A second, you could say, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, 
that is faithful to punish us because he cannot deny himself and his own character and justice. And so there it's a word of warning. Or a third explanation, which can in some ways go with either of the first two, is to say the faithful there is that God is faithful to his promises. And you could argue that even when we make shipwreck of the faith, he is nevertheless still faithful. So we do not nullify his faithfulness if we prove to be faithless. You can find commentators for any of those interpretations. I would submit to you the third. He is faithful to his promises, even if we are faithless and do not remain with him. Not talking about born-again Christians becoming unjustified, but talking about those, the seed that grows up and then withers, those who have some covenant connections and do not remain. Why do I say that? Because the context in the pastoral epistles is about deserters. We get to chapter four, we'll see that all, all sorts of people have left Paul. So he has in his, his mindset people who are with him who didn't stay with him. And then also, it makes more sense to me, you have these four stanzas that you have stanza one and two are positive statements. We die and then we live, we endure and then we reign. And then statements three and four are negative warning statements. If you deny him, he'll deny you. If you're faithless, he'll be faithful to his promises, but you're not going to remain. That makes more sense to go positive, positive, negative, negative, instead of positive, positive, and oops, here's the negative warning, then we're back to the positive again. So I take verse 13 to be something along the lines of Romans 3, 3 and 4. Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? He's talking about Israel. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So the point he was making there in Romans about Israel forfeiting their inheritance and how that did not make God a liar, I think is the same point here. Interestingly, in my study, I found that most of the newer commentaries take the positive view of this verse, that it's a promise that even if we're faithless, God will overcome that and he will be faithful to save us. Whereas the older commentaries I read Jameson Fawcett Brown, Matthew Henry, John Calvin, Chrysostom, they all took the harder negative view and made the same point that God is not maligned by our unbelief. The point, however we take verse 13, remains substantially the same in that this stanza gives us both reason for encouragement and reason for warning, all of which are driving us to the conclusion that we must be strengthened Strengthened because of Christ's work, strengthened because of his word, and then strengthened because of his character. His character that is with us and sufficient to reward us and to give us victory and his character that will not turn a blind eye to sin and abandonment. Let me finish then in these last two minutes with four quick points of application. Number one. As we are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, number one, let us count the cost of discipleship. Let us, contrary to, to some methods, have a relatively narrow door to get in, not narrower than the word of God would have it, but 
There's a process to get in and it's easy to get out. Some churches make it incredibly easy to get in and it's like the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. You're, you're, there's Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches all across the South with 5,000 members and 500 people on Sunday. We need to teach our people the cost of discipleship. Second, apostasy is real. I believe in the preservation of the saints with all my heart. I also believe in taking the scripture at face value that there are people who make some kind of profession and they later make shipwreck of the faith. No matter how many times they raised their hand or how many sinners' prayers they prayed or how many times they threw the pine cone into the fire at summer camp. The question isn't simply how far along you are in the race or how, how, even how fast you are moving, but are you still running and will you finish? See, we need those warnings. The warnings are what cause the elect to persevere. In, in those who are not truly born again, they hear warnings and they think, eh, pff, never going to happen. In the elect, you hear it and you say, oh, God, keep me faithful. Keep me in the love of God. Third, endurance is a team sport. This confession here in verse 11, 12, and 13, notice it's with a we. It's something they would have likely said or sung or recited. It's not simply me and Jesus, what I can do, but we together. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then finally, fourth application is to bring us back full circle. We need both halves of verse one. We need grace and we need strength. We need grace, not simply because we're all failures. And we need strength, not because we're all so strong and mighty. But rather, we can be strong because of grace, and by grace, we must be strong. The warnings in this passage are real, the work is real, and the Savior is real too. Be strong, he says, and know that God is stronger still. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your innumerable blessings in Christ that we may be seated with him in the heavenly places. Would you now by your spirit preach to these people a better sermon than the one that I've just preached? That for some you might cause us to sit up straight and perhaps be alarmed at how lackadaisical and lazy we've become and for others to give us a confidence and an assurance that may have been waning. Oh, how we need your strength. Oh, how we need your grace. Oh, how we need Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.